Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Uh, this week's episode is about this run-of-the-mill movie called Sorry to Bother You. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm joined this week by my friends uh, Josh Brown again and Elijah Howard. Guys, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate yeah, it. like saying, like, I'm happy to be here, and then I realize this is a podcast, so people can see me nodding. <laughs> um, I, I well, I appreciate both of you guys doing this because, like, this is a this is a beast of, the, of a movie to be uh, quite blunt about it, and I think there's just like so much to talk about it, and I think it deserves having like three people discussing it, even more so than like just about any other movie I can think of that I've talked about recently. Because I I think there's so much to unpack, and I, I think uh, in, in first of all, for anyone listening that hasn't seen the movie, I'd, I as much as I love having listeners, I'd say just stop now and go see the movie because I, th- I think we'd all recommend it, even if maybe we liked it to varying degrees. I don't know how these guys feel about it, but I think it's best to go in uh, knowing as little as possible and then just kind of letting the experience uh, overcome you, for lack of a better term. But yeah, I thought th- I thought going into this movie based on some things I had heard, it was just people were telling me don't try and find out anything about it going in. And I didn't, and I'd say I was pretty overwhelmed when I left and it was like a sensory overload type of thing. And I didn't know how I felt. And I think I, I I was having trouble processing the end of the movie. I was like, going to consume a bunch of stuff? And I want to start with Elijah because I talked to you about it and you'd actually seen it a little while back um, at a screening. And I thought like, well, maybe he will not be able to not want to do a podcast because he might've forgotten a lot about it. And you're like, and you said, no, this movie is seared into my memory. Uh, so yeah. me being someone that was just a little perplexed when I left in the theater and not sure what to think, it seemed like you kind of left it, left the movie feeling, uh, pretty taken by it. Uh, what was your like initial reaction? And for a movie that has this much going on, has it kind of sunk in any differently now that you've had time to sit with it? Yeah. I mean, I, seeing it, um, I saw it at a, in an advanced screening, um, with, uh, a Q and a with Boots Riley back in, uh, probably like. Uh, April, late April, early May, somewhere right in there. And um, it's um, it, it was kind of a surreal experience because you um, you know you watch the movie as as a filmmaker, as a film person in general. and there's it's such a raw film. Um, and there's so many moments in it where I was like, well, you know, maybe I wouldn't have done it that way, but it was so it was so it was so clearly personal. Um, and then getting to, you know, to talk to, to Boots Riley afterwards and, to, um, you know, kind of, you know, pick his brain about what, uh, you know, he was going for. And, and what really struck me is how simple um, it was in his mind. It wasn't very complicated to him. Um, the way that he talked about the film, it was kind of like uh, it was very it was very straightforward. Um, and so after that point, going home and, you know, kind of unpacking it and I, I wanted to put a lot of my personal you know views onto it and to look at it from that lens but I kept going back to the way that uh you know Riley talked about it and just how uh you know it was like no there's really it it's just he saw it as exactly what it was and I tried to view it like that going forward and so it's um you know it's a very emblematic movie and there's a lot of uh you know, there's a lot of, of visual storytelling and things like that, and that's what really sticks with me. Um, but the movie itself, I, I kind of just, I love what I've had to say, so. 
Uh, well, I, th- I mean, normally sometimes at the beginning of a podcast, I'll like do like a little plot synopsis, but I don't feel like there's a way to easily do that in a concise way to actually do this movie justice. <laughs> uh, and I, like I said, I assume anyone that's listening is um, has, has already seen it. So rather than do that, I think I'll say that like I think one of the initial things you like take from this movie is that it obviously has like a strong anti-capitalism uh, message. But I mean, was there something else that? he said what was there what what, what did you, you said he kind of put it in fairly simple terms for you was it something like that or was there a little more to it about just how he feels about oakland or what what, what was like the big thing that you you were lucky enough to hear him talk what was the big thing you took from what he said no i mean you mean you hit it right on the head I and mean, the the anti-capitalism was the that was the crux of it um you know he had he had started he started working on this film a long time ago. I think 2012, I think, is when he said he I was in an interview with him today. Script. It was 2011, actually. Yeah. 20, 2011, right. And so... It feels like Occupy Wall Street's, like, running through this stuff. Right, yeah. I mean, there's definitely a current of it. And it's... I think it's both an asset to it to see how that had to evolve, um, you know, over the last uh, seven years, you know, to get to where it is now. Um, it, it, I think it comes as a detriment sometimes. But for the most part... Um, you know, that was really what this was, was just kind of his personal reaction to what he saw happening in the real world with, um, you know, with with capitalism and with uh, with capitalism in the United States, I want to say specifically. Um, and I mean, that that was he was very clear about that, that it was uh, very much a, a cautionary tale about um Specifically, what happens to minorities when, you know, when capitalism uh, you know, runs amok? If you, are... yeah, Josh, what, what what was what was your initial reaction to it? Uh, well, I wasn't as uh, lucky as uh, Elijah was in like getting to see like uh, uh, see it with a Q and A with Boots Riley, um, <laughs> but I. I like I listened to an interview with him where he described it as like a beautiful clutter. And I that's probably like the best way to describe the film, uh, in my view. Um, it's it is a pretty, you know, for a directorial debut, it's you know, it's a pretty strong directorial debut. You can't necessarily say it's like, you know, uh, uh derivative. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like and you know it you know it's a it's a movie that i enjoyed quite a bit um you know it's it's uneven because as i think what he was saying in the interview i was listening to like his music he likes things that are what one would describe as sloppy and like a little bit like uh uh not always uh uh cohesive and you know and i I got that impression like you know this movie is like there's a lot of ideas being thrown at the wall some of them a lot of them, I think, do stick. Some don't work as others, but I, you know, found it, you know, funny. And then when it goes bonkers in the, like the last third, um, I, I just was like, okay, this is pretty, this is really good. Um, also, it's a scary movie. T- this might be the most frightening movie of the year because <laughs> everything that happens in it, I'm like, maybe we're like a year or two away from this becoming reality. <laughs> um, it feels oddly prescient. Well, yeah. Um, so I think that's what scares me the most about this film. Well, yeah, I think I think it's interesting that you say that because, like Elijah said, he started making this thing in 2011, and it's obviously like right in the wake of the um, the recession. And I and I was really digging the first part of the movie where it's like, oh, it has something interesting to say about the about the wage gap and uh, and also like economic inequality and how like it really only seemed like seems like there's two routes you can go. And obviously, it's I mean maybe 
I mean, if you're going to be a person of color, maybe you're going to have to like sell your soul to even kind of get into that other stratosphere like Cash does. But I, and I really liked that whole entire part of it. And I left the movie just so, like, like I said, on sensory overload on that last third, not knowing really, or maybe last fourth of the movie, just once things get really crazy, like you said, and I didn't know how to feel about it. But I think I was such, such sensory overload that I just, like, it, it almost made me, I almost forgot until I was like back, going back and reading of it about the whole entire part about how when he finally plays that tape, how it's like, oh, well, the, it's not actually going to hurt that company at all and they're going to yeah, do really well. And that actually felt like a little more current, like how, I mean, you look at like all the bad shit that, not that like that part was written in a direct response to like Trump or something like that, but it's like every time something really terrible comes out about some really powerful capitalist or anything like that, it's, you think it might be the end and it's just like, it's not, and it only fuels things and they might even profit from something like that coming out and that felt like almost like you said pretty prescient for a movie that was originally inspired in 2011 by events going on at that time yeah and i think that's always like the best like satire like when you think of like say network or like face in the crowd where you you have like i always say like satire is always best when you have this like strong dramatic hook and people are like it, it you know it, it feels grounded in reality, but like it feels like exaggerated. And then that's usually the satire that ends up, you know, uh, having a longer impact because like uh, you go back to it and it's like, oh, my God, it predicted everything. And then so like, you know, I feel like that exaggerated but grounded quality about it is like, you know, what makes me frightened? It's like, will we have like a worry-free, you know, facilities in the future? Like we sort of already do with like Foxconn and like uh, over in uh, China uh, making like Apple products. And we also live in this time of like that when the tape, when Cash uh, releases the tape and like the first thing that happens is that the stock market goes up because yeah. uh, uh, like that feels like something like this time where like, people are living without or without any shame um it it feels prescient in that manner um i think it's i think it's also about um you know the the narrative and the control of the narrative and in a grand narrative for a country because i think i think in a way um the big short which is a film that i don't particularly love but I, I do like that one specific moment at the end where um you know after everything comes tumbling down I think Ryan Gosling says something like, over the next couple of years, bankers everywhere were, uh, you know, brought up on charges of fraud, (laughs) all these things. And then he says, you know, no, they actually weren't. In reality, (laughs) you know, what happened was one guy went to jail. Yeah, one person went to jail. Um, (laughs) And uh, so I think, yeah, that's it's about how, you know, that, that aspect of it is what is the story and how do we, you know, control the, the story, if you will. And I liked that aspect of the film where, you know, all this comes out and I think they showed, they, they show, um, uh, you know, they show like a news clip or whatever of army hammers character, you know, making some like half hearted, not really an apology kind of thing about it. And you know, how that's sort of become the default and what we expect is that, uh, you know, that, something bad will happen and there'll be, there'll be a, you know, a weep tour and that'll be about it. Uh, yeah. And, and like, actually the way you said about army hammer reminds me of like one of my favorite lines of the movie is where, um, cause we're not doing spoilers. Uh, I mean like, spoiler go for it. Alert. Go for it. Um, 
But like when uh, Cash finds out that like he's turning the workers into horses, and uh, and then he's and then he's like, "Are you turning me? Did I like after sniffing the coke? Like, did you turn me into a horse?" Like, no, man. I always ask for the consent before I do it. I'm not some type of monster. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. A quick question. Like going into this movie, I sort of ha- heard like comparisons um and speaking of satire like i heard comparisons uh to like spike jones and spike lee if they had a child this would be it but and i think those guys are in this movie but i would say like the main influence sort of this reminded me of i feel like mike judge like sort of permeates through this a lot like a cross between office space and idiocracy yeah yeah i mean i i definitely um I got those vibes from it. I think, um, you know, the film, the film is, is, it's very, obviously it's, it's a very, you know, sharp concept and it's got a lot of, uh, clever satire, but in a way it is kind of banal. Like none, none of the characters in this movie are like particularly bright or witty or like super well-spoken. It's, it's not, sorry, what'd you say? Oh, oh, they think they are though, right? Yeah, and I—that's why to me, it, you're right. It did, ha, it did have a kind of idiocracy office space. I got a little bit of like Southland Tales in there too. Um, you know, it's not—it's not a satire filled with. It wasn't Sorkin-esque. It wasn't you know people walking around and talking. It was a lot of people doing kind of dumb things out of self-interest and out of you know out of out of. A, you know, a sense of honor and, and, it's, and it, you know, the accumulation is something really fascinating and great, but the, the moment to moment is almost her hilariously dry. Um, you yeah. know, and like what you were speaking about the banality of it, like what like resonated with me the most was like that, it, that like sort of low income and vi- where you're just like, especially when you're like really young and uh, you're like, entering the workforce for the first time and like the only jobs offered to you are like these telemarketer like i've been into those like those telemarketer facilities and he i feel like he captured that vibe you know like you have a shitty car you know you work in these like you live with terry cruz and owe him a bunch of rent (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's just yeah like i felt like he captured like the low-income struggle uh like pretty well uh uh uh, like when you're just at a shitty job and you're just trying to just make ends meet like i feel like he got that well and that's what connected to me as well with it um also i must say the bleeding heart liberal me always is brings a smile to my face that you have a movie out that like one of its end conclusions is uh, a pro-union one like um like you don't really get that often like a movie that's just like yeah you know what a solution to this stronger unions yeah i don't i can't i can't really think of a lot of movies i've seen in recent years that are really like i mean i've seen i feel like a few we've seen stuff about the that that like is about the effects of the depression what like i mean like whether it be the big short or 99 homes or even like the whole entire like opening sequence of up in the air stuff that gets it like how tough it was but then to actually like kind of follow up more on the the labor thread i can't really think of a lot of movies that have necessarily done that in recent years yeah and i wonder if it's because we're honestly still feeling the repercussions you know it's been it's been a decade but you know a decade since the initial moment and you know the fallout i think 
it, to a degree, I think we're still feeling, um, you know, and I think that's kind of going to make uh, films about it, not necessarily hard to come by, but, um, but hard to come by, you know, at the end of the day, they're you know. hard to sell poverty as like a feel good thing, you know? Right. Uh, and that's part of what almost, I mean, it's part of what is fueled like the, the current political climate, you know I mean? Like, I, I don't know what that effect that it has on our popular culture, but I mean, the fact that like a lot of people never really got out of the recession, some would say led to the current presidential situation we have you know so i don't i don't know right but, i mean it's interesting to think about i mean it's it's a wonderful life came out in what 1946 right and i think that's that's probably i would say that's like the most quintessential like post-depression film Rape's it, is just angry like what did it have to do <laughs> <laughs> well i mean you but but you I know, get your point, yeah yeah, I mean the whole you know Ghost of Christmas Past, whatever. That that's not what I'm talking. I'm talking more about you know Potter's not selling, Potter's buying kind of stuff in that movie. And I think, I mean that was 16 years after this, you know, after the almost 17 years after the market crash, in uh, you know in the Great Depression. And I think, you know, that if it took that long to have a cogent. Uh, you know, example of post-depression filmmaking. I think we're doing pretty good getting uh, getting this kind of film at 10 years. Um, yeah, I, I think I heard, like, someone, I forgot who was saying this, um, but, like, you know, when it came to, like, Vietnam War movies, for instance, like, you didn't really have, like, defining movies during the war. You had it, like, you know, 10 years after they started cropping up and stuff, and hence why, like, I think someone said this is why we don't have a great like war on a definitive war on terror film because like we're still in it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, this seems like, you know, if we look back in like film history, like will we like look at this film as like an Obama era film or like a post Trump, you know, era film, um, you know, it, it's cause it feels like a speaking to like both moments, but maybe those are like the moments that like define the 2010s, you know? Yeah, I mean, it almost felt like to me like a. I mean, who know? Like you said, I mean, who knows how we'll look back on it way back after the fact? But I mean, like we were talking about earlier, it, it seems like it in ways it predicted the moment pretty well, despite the fact it was it was conceived in the Obama era, but came out in the Trump era. And it, like you said, it, it's I guess that's a testament to his storytelling and his vision that it does feel a piece of both eras for sure. I don't, I don't know if you guys have anything to add on to that, but I, I also wanted to. Um, talk a little bit about just the i don't i feel like we actually haven't gotten into like the, the meat of like the actual plot or anything like that um which i mean which shows how interesting the movie is that like you can even talk about it for almost 20 minutes and not get to that stuff but i mean uh i i think one of the things that struck me about it is i don't i it's not like on wikipedia like a lot of movies but just based on the interviews i've seen with him it seems like the movie wasn't made for a ton of money and it's i thought i thought it has a pretty distinct visual style that you feel right from the get-go so what did you guys think like when you're just like dropped into that world and uh you wake up with cash and you follow him like what were your initial impressions is like you just kind of started on the journey of the film yeah like at times like you know i felt like you know some of the budgetary constraints or maybe like you know new filmmaker you know first time filmmaker not exactly the most kinetic camera movements at all but at the same time like he i found like he found great workarounds it like i think there's some visual great visual conceits like uh like cash is dropping in on like yeah. uh 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 like customers like bone like in their living rooms and stuff when he's talking to them on the phone like i like i remember like uh boots riley saying that you know they try to do um 
in the beginning, his initial conception of like the cubicle workspace was like a reference to like the apartment um, where you have like this forced perspective stuff going on. But like because they didn't have that much money, they certainly the production designer really had to like, you know, work around and try to find a way to make the spaces look crowded and more much more crowded than they actually are. But there's a lot of great like the opening scene with the. Uh, garage like op- like opening while they're uh, like about to make love and stuff like these are some great visual gags uh, that he imbues the story with and there's a lot of color with like you know these characters especially around Tessa Thompson yeah and I mean I thought I thought the DIY nature of it you know while apparent and you know kind of as a meta aspect of the film like watching the film you can see Yes, okay, that was that was a little cheap, but I felt it never felt like it really took me out of it because I I felt like that was sort of you know that was the film was this idea of the you know that you have to kind of do everything yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, I, so. and I didn't know initially that it was supposed to be set in Oakland. Maybe I would have known that if I'd like read more about it beforehand or watched the trailers or even knew that's where Boot Trial is from. I'm not a big music guy, so I'm I'm not gonna. I just didn't really know anything about the Cube beforehand. So I'm sure it was apparent to a lot of people that actually like were watching it, but I didn't. So at first I thought maybe this is like a fictional town, and he just like kind of created its look. I mean, they shot on location, but I didn't know that. So like until I actually got to the point where I was like, oh, this is Oakland. I was like, oh, it created this own interesting looking place. At first I thought it was almost a period piece for like the like set in the early 90s or something for like the first 15 minutes because you don't really see any modern technology or anything like that till you're like actually in the office so i i it was kind of an interesting like process in getting me to that point to realize where, where, what the setting actually was and i was just kind of taking it all in you know yeah and but oh how'd you guys feel about like the performances uh like uh like well, uh, who were the standouts for you um you know i think i i mean i uh, my love of of uh, like Keith Stanfield is, is well known, but I thought, um, you know, I thought army hammer was actually really great. I mean, he's just, he, he does a fantastic <laughs> job playing a scumbag. He does it. He does it frequently and it works really well for him. Yeah. I feel uh, like he's around them a lot. And so like right. he, can, he can tap into that. Great. By the way, was it here? Did it feel like, like Keith was playing uh white Zanak? Uh, I don't, I haven't seen a lot of his, why it's acting aside from medicine for melancholy. Am I forgetting something else that I should be thinking of him in? Um, oh, well, cause like, there's not like his also like his like stand up and stuff like, like, cause like to me, like, uh, like why it is like sort of that, like prototypical, like black tip hipster, um, uh, like, you know, he, he does that insecure stuff like pretty well. Like, like I really like Lakeith's performances, but it reminded me a lot of like why it's an act. I'd, I'd be inclined to agree, but I've also heard that that is literally just what Lakeith Stanfield is like in real life. Like, that he, he always plays himself. Like, <laughs> he just plays this, like, weird, like, you know, not necessarily all there kind of guy because that's that's really just who he is. Like, and I'm, I believe that. Like, I'd, yeah, I'd buy that. Oh, no, he's super weird. Like, I've been a, I've been a fan of his since, like, the very beginning like i've seen even the short term 12 short uh where and then he disappeared off the face of the earth for, for like four years until destin cretton's like oh no i want to have you in the movie too and that's like what actually started his career like he's just a weird dude that like would do, st- would, would do stuff like that and like i mean i feel like it almost makes it more impressive to me when i know how weird he is and then he, i can actually buy him getting into just 
different roles. I mean, like I'd say it's more, a little more overtly comic, like what he does on Atlanta and he can do other serious stuff too. But no, I mean, I really enjoyed him and I always, uh, enjoy Tessa Thompson's presence. I, I, I like Steven Yen a lot too. I mean, he, I, I'm like, I'm like happy for him that he like got out of the, like the, the sewage of walking dead and is like getting to like do cool stuff. Cause like I, I gave up on that show a little too late, but still a while ago at this point. And like, I always liked him and it's like, Oh cool. You get to be in Oakja and he, what's that movie that did really well at Cannes that he's going to be in. I'm, uh, forgetting oh burning oh uh, yeah Burn. yeah yeah so like I'm, I'm happy for him and it was cool it's like man you, you you started out as a tv actor and like i feel like you held your own against like all these movie actors and created like a really believable character uh you know he was i liked everybody in the film but i think he was like my favorite performance uh he, he felt the most real to me his yeah his role actually to me that that was the one role that i did revisit in terms of like when i was thinking about the film because when i first watched the film i was like this is this is a little ham-fisted. It came to me at first. It came off as a little ridiculous, and then I realized going back and thinking about it later, I was like, "But that is so what like a real person would do would be to try to like romanticize themselves and make themselves more uh, like interesting or whatever than they than they actually and I, are." And, and idealistic, like he was. Ex- uh, yeah, exactly. Well, I, it's funny. It's funny you brought up the performance because the next thing before Josh had said that that I was going to ask you guys about was just the whole the whole use of the the white voice thing. But like that that brings me to Danny Glover, who like when I did a podcast on Proud Mary earlier this year with uh anthony a movie that we were it was a movie we were both disappointed by and but i was like if we both like we looked at danny, uh, danny glover's imdb and like neither of us had seen a movie that he'd been in in like 10 years since like shooter uh, the mark Wahlberg <laughs> vehicle and uh and i was just like he actually like, i don't know if either of you guys saw that movie if you didn't you were you weren't missing I, anything that's one of those like wait proud mary or shooter because i saw shooter no, proud mary the the thing earlier this year but like it was like he it felt like he hadn't acted in 10 years i mean he'd been in like b movies in the interim but like it was he felt it was like he seemed so rusty and he wasn't really that good and i actually enjoyed him in this like the small moments they had in this movie and like it was i mean it might have been enhanced by like the how that because i guess the white voice thing was in the trailer but like i said i didn't watch the trailer so it totally caught me off guard and i didn't know anything like that was coming so then you just like throw him in there and you let him introduce that whole aspect to the film and i got a real kick out of it and i thought he did a pretty good job doing it <laughs> but i think he's always welcome presence but did you recognize like the white voices like who were the actors doing it uh but when you were watching it beforehand like uh i i, oh, I, th- I think i did eventually pick up on david cross but like it bothered me for a little bit because i didn't at first and i was like really annoyed <laughs> i pick up on david cross until like after i saw the movie but like Patton oswald like you know i could tell uh yeah i picked up on Patton oswald immediately because i've I guess I've just heard his voice too much from from stand up or from whatever, but I was like, yeah. What did you guys? Well, what did you guys think about how they utilized that in within the movie? Oh, it's hilarious. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it, and also I think like uh, oh, and Lily James is uh, Tessa Thompson's white voice, and I think like I missed that. What I, what I liked about that dichotomy is like this whole movie is about like you know cash is like selling out and stuff like that and then like also tessa who's the more liberal the more radical uh uh, partner in the relationship she too also has to put on this performative uh uh aspect uh of herself in in regards to her art and so like i thought like that was an excellent commentary on 
like I, you know, just the performative nature of like uh, of black people in a white person's world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought, and the one of it kind of spoke to a larger thing that the film did, which is stylized approaches to to real scenarios faced by POCs, and I thought that was an interesting way of tackling something like code switching or, um, you know, uh, uh, fronting, you know, things like that. Like, and that was several aspects of the film was doing that, was taking, um, you know, real situations that people face and kind of giving them this, this otherworldly spin. So, well, so then, so then Cash, like, works his way up and gets invited to, like, hang out with Army Hammer and the higher-ups of worry-free or even even starts working in it when he just starts working out on the worry-free account and he um sells them out i mean we talked about a little bit about the the pro-labor message i mean and a little bit about his performance what did you think of like just that turning point of the film where he where he crosses the the the, line, the picket line for and is then just thrust in there did um what did you think of him having to play that and straddle that line and he's like oh i'm i'm just watching you guys from the sidelines did you what did you think about how that was about how lakeith was able to portray his struggle with that or lack thereof for the time he had just kind of sold his soul i mean i think they they approached it that was an aspect that they approached realistically, I felt, which was it was interesting. And that was, again, this juxtaposition of, uh, you know, the real and the surreal for him. He goes about it very placidly, which I thought was was really great because I, I thought that was real. I thought that was so, uh, you know, truthful to the way that a lot of people kind of just, you know, there's this sense of resignation where it's like, you know, eh. There's really nothing I can do about this, you know. I may as well. I may as well. I may as well get mine, you know. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And also, like, quick question: like, if you were desperate for money, would you like, you know, uh, uh, join a telemarketing company and uh, uh, sell to, uh, you know, an industry that has basically slaves? Or, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, it's. A, I mean, it's a tough question because I think. I think. I think Josh and I both approach it from kind of both a perspective of, you know, of introspection where we, you know, there's the, the Judaism in my background and, you know, that part of our story. But there's also it's also coming from a place of privilege where we ourselves have never had to confront that in the immediate like like the, the current present reality. So it's, it's hard for me to say. Um, and also like that that version of almost slavery but for sure indentured servitude like it doesn't exactly it's not something that like either of us would have to confront today but like josh said unfortunately it doesn't also feel like the most inconceivable thing in the world so um i guess it's so it it allows you to like actually it it doesn't feel totally foreign when lakeith is put in that situation so like it allows you to actually like look inward and be like oh this isn't like the most far-fetched thing in the world which i think is like a cool way like you said the movie as um as bizarre as it can be at times, it like picked its spots to actually feel kind of grounded, which is nice, you know. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, it it sort of goes back to the aspect that I was saying with with Steve Yoon's character, where it's I I personally in in you know in the world outside of this film, yeah, I'd want to believe that I would you know that I would stand up, that I would be the protagonist of my story, and I would stand up and you know fight against it and. You know, I wouldn't cross the picket line, but the reality is, is I have no idea. And, <laughs> and the reality is that probably I'm not, and most people are probably not that heroic or that, uh, you know, that brave or that, uh, 
you know, willing to fight for things like that. So this reminds me of like this tweet that I read like this week about like, you know, it was in relation to like the Trump era and it was like, what would you like, you know, the question, what would you have done in Nazi Germany um, while it was happening? And then like the tweet was basically whatever you're doing right now. And like, I think this movie like speaks to like that complacency and yeah, like, interesting. Like when like uh, shit starts falling apart with with society, you know the fact that we've the fact that we've gotten to a place where like you know people like you know it's not inconceivable that like people would sell themselves out for indentured servitude. Like the fact that like you know the you know class you know whereas like the middle class was almost like a guaranteed thing only like 40, 50 years ago, you know, and so. I think, like, that's one of the things that I think this movie tackles well when it comes to, like, uh, the class struggle. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a weird exercise to do for, like, a, a Jewish person, I guess, like, Elijah myself. No, 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 I know what you mean. Like, I mean, I, it's hard for me to answer, like, the Nazi question specifically, but just, like, comparing it to, like, today, thinking of me as someone that is, I'm not, I'm no hero or anything, but, like, two years ago, I'd never been to a protest in my life. And now I've, it's something I can say I've done a few times and it's like, yeah, sure. Like you always are thinking about what more you can do, but then that like have a, have a, have it go to a movie and have it like allow it to like inspire that kind of thought exercise is like a, a pretty interesting thing. And I don't even know if I quite thought about it cause I hadn't seen that tweet you mentioned, but like, I like thinking about it in the context of this movie and like being put in like the situation cash is put in. And it's like, I, I mean, like especially me as someone that like I have been afforded a lot of privileges in life. And I only really came to realize that like in the last five years, it's like, huh, I would like to think I would have the balls to stand up and do something, but I, 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 I can't say that for sure either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Well, and I would say an, an additional part of the, the question is, you know, when, if you're, if you're talking, if we're going to, you know, use the, the Nazi comparison, it's like when during, during Nazi Germany, because I think with, with most, um, you know, when we talk about like empire theory or whatever, and something that I think this film kind of uh, questions is, um, you know, at what point do we do? Are we at what point are we able to succinctly sit back and realize that things have gone wrong? Because it's like if there's no, if you can't get a full consensus on something, then it's kind of hard to say like, yeah, you know, this was like this was wrong or whatever. And um, people just I think adjust like accordingly right yeah exactly people adjust and until things become unbearable and it's kind of you it's recognizing what's that point of unbearability and i think it's interesting that in the film and i'm just i'm gonna i'm gonna cut straight to it but i i mean obviously i, I don't want to skip too much of the plot but yeah, go for th- it. that point that point of unbearability is not even the revelation that army hammer's character has created equisapiens has created horse people the, the point of unbearability is horse people running through the streets and destroying like police cars and rioting like that's the point of 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 uh, you know of no return and i think um you know when you think about like nazi germany as a comparison and in today's society as a comparison it's like what you know, well, have we reached a point of unbearability yet? Well, Cash's point of like that—that's where like society in, within the world of the film reaches its point. Cash reaches like his personal jumping-off point uh, once he once he sees the horse people, basically, or even a little before that. He's obviously pretty uncomfortable at that party. What did you think about that? Once we get to that point, where it's like he goes to that party and and, and then uh, Army Hammer abruptly tells him to drop the black or drop the white voice, and they have him do the rap and everything. What did you guys think of that whole sequence? Just even getting to the Equisapien revelation. 
Well, yeah, like I thought, like, you know, I think it probably comes from like a personal uh, place for Boost Riley as this, you know, musician in like the hip hop world where like he's probably used to uh, confronting like being in an uncomfortable situation where you have like white people like rap, uh, like, you know, say out the N word uh, or ask ask you to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, to be fair, I, I must I just say, like, my rapping skills is probably on par with Cash's. Uh, <laughs> so, so, but I thought that was, like, a great, like, you know, social, like, satirical social commentary. It was one of those moments in the film that I really dug. Um, and it could have gone the other way because there's other things in this film that I, like, I, I didn't in quite enjoy. Like, I was wondering, like, I was having a conversation with a friend about this where it's like, and since this movie throws a lot of stuff at the wall, like, is there, there's, like, everybody has, like, their different things that, like, they resonate, things that they like a lot about it, and things that they just found, like, didn't work. And I was wondering what were, like, the things that you guys found, like, just didn't work for you. Like, my friend didn't like the Tessa Thompson uh, subplot, for instance. I I would say, I mean, I think when the film got to, um, when, when Boots Riley, I mean, I don't want to place everything on him, but when, when, when the, when the narrative got very, um, arcane, uh, you know, sort of in between when he, you know, starts to become a power caller and, and that party, there is definitely a lull to me where the film kind of I don't want I really don't want to say it gets up its own ass, but it sort of does. Yeah. Um, you know, Which the thing with like the problem with most satires anyway. Yeah. Like the thing with the back room at the at the bar and, you know, like he goes into the back room and he gets like a drink spilled on his shirt and then he comes back out and just things like that are. It doesn't. It's to me. It didn't fit with the overall, um, you know, aesthetic and the kineticism of the rest of the film. Um, or with the electricity of the rest of the film, rather, um, you know, there was, there is so much like fire and like you know, it was just such a, <laughs> such an angsty film um, earlier on, and then you, you, there was just some moments where it was like it just lost all of that and went straight for like went straight for the jugular on like trying to be surreal and um, and and dreamlike, and I was like, eh, I would prefer this kind of grungy you know, reality and surreality instead. Well, yeah, now that Elijah puts it that way, like, I I honestly probably can't tell you a lot of what happened in that time period, like, between when he goes to the party and when he gets promoted. Like, I know he did a really good job and made a lot of money, but, and I can maybe remember a few of the conversations he had with Tessa Thompson, but it felt like there was, I don't, I don't even know if you want to call it filler, because I think that doesn't do it justice, because I think the whole film is still done with a lot of style, and I was maybe enjoying it as I watched it, but like that felt pretty extraneous. And I guess the Tessa Thompson stuff was, but I, I still like, you could have cut it out and I don't know if the film necessarily loses a ton, but like, it still feels like it gives you a better sense of who she is just to spend that time with her. Even if it's maybe not essential to the main threads of the film, it still means a little bit more when they do have their separation or their reunification. Yeah. Like I, like, I, like, I, I like, I think probably the weakest parts are the Tessa Thompson stuff, but I think, and I love her and I love her so much that it's like, I don't care. I'll watch her read the phone book. So yeah, yeah. it's like, yeah, she's good. Um, uh, but like, I think her stuff is like the weakest stuff, uh, in relation to the overall plot. But for me, like my friend really didn't like it. Me, I, I, it, it justified itself at the art, uh, installation wherein like she's doing this performative thing as, 
like like he like it mirrors like his performative uh, uh, struggle in the workplace, even though they have completely different work atmospheres and philosophies and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting thing to touch on. Is you know, do you think? Do you guys think that the commentary there, or that the the kind of the 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 implicit value there was that Tessa Thompson believes what she's saying, but not necessarily the way that she's saying it. You know, if you're talking about performative, uh, you know, action in a workplace, do you think that the idea there is that Tessa Thompson? feels like she's obligated to do that to you know wear middle fingers over her <laughs> over her breasts and you know have stuff thrown at her because that's what you have to do in that scenario or do you think that she like you know legitimately believes it or cuz i thought that scene was played kind of sad like the way that it's cut the way that the music plays with it like I was I thought it was sort of sad, um, you know, watching that scene unfold. Well, maybe she felt like she needed to do it um, just as like the proper expression of the art that she the, – the art and the message she felt like she was trying to get across. But I actually felt like maybe the whole subplot of her also kind of – while being part of the um, the strike, also like becoming part of the, um, the underground – uh, what do you want to call it? I forgot what that group is called now already. Um, the, the left eye. Yeah, the left eye. That she became a part of them showed that, like, I mean, she wasn't getting any personal recognition for that per se. She was so that showed me that, like, maybe she actually did believe this stuff, even if there was that performative aspect as well. And like, you know, like uh, the Tessa Thompson character reminded me of like like a couple girls like I, I I've known like because I have like friends like and like that were like art like majors and stuff like that so like I briefly hung around like those people and so like uh like it it like so like her character like I it, like felt like sort of real and not like also there's like an absurdity to some of their pretensions you know as well that I felt like he was uh grappling with or whatever uh, but and you know and I also kind of, like you know and also like her job as like the sign holder also sort of like you know gets at that like that class struggle that like he depicts throughout the film um but yeah like I, I didn't like you know I think hers is like her arc is probably the messiest out of everything in the film um but you know again like for me personally like it justifies itself with like you know, like, with the commentary that I think he's making with it. Uh, but I don't know, like, my friend, like, he, he didn't like it. Like, he felt like it was, like, like which girl did uh, hurt Boops Riley type of thing. Like, he felt like, <laughs> a little bit too, like, sexist or something. Um, and, like, you know, and then, like, it, like, sort of getting into this trope of, like, a girl sort of being the moral, like, figure uh, for when you, everybody else around him is like being his moral conscience so what was it necessary stuff like that and I I I, 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 I I think there's some valid points but I'm not like fully on board with that argument I don't know if you guys are I, I, I mean I can see where it's coming from and I do think that films in general all films you know in history and it's, it's becoming less of an issue now, but some films still have an issue with using female characters as props more than as characters necessarily. And I do think that to some degree 
Tessa Thompson exists as a motivation for Cassius rather than as an individual character. Mm-hmm. Um, her actions, you know, are everything that she does creates a respondent action in the main character. Um, it's like she doesn't really have much, um, you know, narrative agency where her actions don't immediately affect the, uh, you know, the main character. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm so, I, maybe I'm just, I'm so used to that from, from the way that the films are that I don't really care, but you know, I can see that. I can see that for a lot of it, but again, I thought her like, even if it wasn't a big part of it, like it seemed like her, her actions for the left eye were seemed fairly independent of cash. I mean, obviously like it's in a response to like a corporation he's working in service of, but like it felt like her, giving her a little bit more time to do her own thing. Even if like, yeah, like you said, a lot of it was there to have some sort of reaction from him on one end. It, it just didn't strike me as that in the moment. I felt like she got to be more than just the girlfriend to me. At least. Yeah. Bring into like, I think I'm on the same page as you guys. I just thought like, like, you know, I thought it was, it's been a criticism that I've been, Thinking about even if I don't like entirely agree with it, like he was especially bothered by like the subplot about like her like fucking his best friend, uh, his like coworker uh, Stephen Young in the movie, and I was wondering how you guys felt about like that subplot. It, it maybe felt, I mean, half baked in the grand scheme of everything the movie had going on, but and that's I, what he was getting at. What? Oh, that's what he was getting at. Like yeah, the, I mean, I get, I mean, like. I, I I don't people I think even the people that like this movie a lot can agree that there's just a lot of stuff thrown in there and when you throw that much stuff into a movie inevitably something's going to feel a little underserved but I, it didn't feel distractingly bad to me it was just like hey that's a that's a thing that happened there and they address it a little bit but like you're not going to be able this this isn't going to be a three hour movie so something's going to have to some things are just going to have to be only a few minutes you know that's how I, I kind of took it. It's yeah. like, you know, like, okay, this pizza has anchovies, green peppers, pepperoni, sausage, or whatever. You know, I, I didn't understand why I needed that paprika, but okay, the recipe's great. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I thought the thing with Steve Yoon kind of fed into, maybe to a lesser degree, but it fed into that, uh, again, that idea of banality where it's like there's all of this craziness occurring in their world, um, and yet they're still human. Like they still make time for, for trysts and for, you know, romantic infidelity. And it's like, yeah, that is, that is exceedingly normal. Like that is exactly something that I could see happening. It's, fair, it's fairly unrelated, but it actually reminds me of what I think, and, and what David Simon said at one point about the wire, where it, it felt like you were getting pretty far down the, the chain of characters and life moments to show like, uh, Daniel's hooking up with Perlman, but it's like, well, that, that's just uh, or, uh that's just like a people have to people have sex. It's part of life, and we're if you have like a deep cast of characters, like stuff is going to happen that's maybe extraneous to like the main thing that's going on. But like it'll still give a little, even if it's not like an all out big time storyline. Like, hey, this just kind of shows that these people have lives even when you're not seeing them on screen. I mean, you can imagine what they're off doing. Yeah. 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 Well, I, yeah. I, the, the, the only other, the only other thing I really want to talk about after that, which I feel like we kind of already discussed, but it definitely deserves, um, I feel like a bit more attention was just the was just that like the reveal once that once we learn about the Equisapiens, I that was kind of where like it obviously threw a lot of people for a loop within the context of the movie. And like I said earlier, I feel like once I thought about it a little more, I kind of understood how like how we discussed, you know, 
something like that happens, the company's stock profits go up or anything like that. But it's still just such a jarring thing in the context of the movie. And I guess at that point, you shouldn't necessarily be expecting the movie to do anything normal. But it's still something that's – if it's just like a – Maybe a film goer that's not used to seeing weird movies sees that. It, it could go one way or the other. So I feel like it probably was a, a breaking point maybe for some people one way or the other. But it's a very extreme direction that the movie goes in. I guess my last question to you guys is it's just because that final half, which we like, I don't, we don't need to spend a ton of time discussing it because we already did a little bit. But it's so bonkers. I mean it seems like you guys both agree that the movie did pull it off to a certain extent, even though if it really did get kind of out there is, is there like, do you guys have any just other thoughts on just how the movie does stick the landing in that regard? Yeah, I, uh, and this is something I think I messaged, but probably both of you guys like 10 within 10 minutes of leaving the movie. Uh, when I first saw it, I was like, um, this movie, I, I think I called it the, the love child of, uh, Spike Lee and Luis Buñuel. Um, and that was why that this the, the entire last segment of the film is where I got that Buñuel from because I mean I I don't know if either of you have seen yeah uh, a lot of Buñuel films but not me I've seen but... Belle Jour and uh, the Street Charm of the Bourgeoisie and Chained uh, right. Andalou so so yeah the Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie is it's a bookend film it's it's kind of there's that film and then there's Exterminating Angel mm-hmm. um, and so uh, Josh for you having not seen it, and for I would assume probably some audience members who have not seen this, um, there's these two films, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, where the the simple plot could be described as a group of people, a group of rich people, uh, attempt to have dinner, and they can never actually end up having dinner because their dinner keeps getting interrupted by a series of increasingly random and and disjointed and strange things. Hmm. Um, and then Exterminating Angel is kind of the other end of that, which is a group of people can't leave dinner because things keep compelling them to stay. Um, and they, again, it gets weirder and weirder. And the final scene in Exterminating Angel, I'm sorry, I'm going double spoilers here. Spoilers for a film we didn't even talk about. but Go for it. Uh, I, 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 I'm sure I'll be able to still appreciate it whenever I get I'm around so to watch it. Like, I was going to see it this week. <laughs> oh, wow. Sorry. But um, – in Exterminating Angel, the final thing that prevents them from uh, leaving dinner is a uh, a random flock of sheep just bursts through the doors of their house and starts like like running through and just taking over, like it's just causing havoc. Um, and so, to me, I kind of viewed this film in that way, where it was just I I accepted it. Because within the logic of the film, up until that point, there was no reason for me not to accept that that was what was going to happen. Right. I get um, it. Yeah. And so it was it was uh, and I thought it was layered. I thought there was a lot of context to it. I thought I love that there is, you know, horses as a beast of burden and, you know, that humans are becoming the equivalent of that. Um, and Right, and uh, and I think there's also a little bit of a racial commentary there that, uh, you know, uh, frequently in society, uh, African-American men are considered beast-like by racist people, you know. I think Get Out kind of touched on that, too, you know. You know, they call, yeah. you know, they call them bulls or, you or know, they're just, or, they're, or they're just like, in Get Out, they're purely just used for their physical attributes and ironically enough with Keith Stanfield being one of those people um, right exactly so I to me that was I loved the the layered aspect of that and I love that the film doesn't 
um, you know, break this, the, the language that it's established to make that work, that the final scene of the film when they go to Army Hammer's house and you literally have the shot of like from like the security camera with the horse people like in fisheye view, like ready to bust down the door. Like that's, <laughs> that's such like something I could imagine seeing in like, you know, and probably have seen in a number of like gangster and crime films and stuff. And it's yeah. just like, Tony Montana. <laughs> right. They just juxtapose. They just, or they just, they just transpose. They just took that scene and put horse people in it. And you know what? I don't care. Like it worked really well. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with, like, Elijah. Like, I accepted it in uh, the context of the movie, and it made sense. Like, because to me, like, this has, like, this, like, you know, it, like, the movie is, slow, uh, is about this dysto- dystopia, this workplace dystopia, and it reminded me of, like, Soylent. At that point, it becomes Soylent Green, essentially, um, where, you know, uh, spoiler for, like, a movie 40 years old, but, like, you know, in that movie, it turns out that the product that this company is making is, like, people, um and so uh like and so it had that aspect to it and you know one thing i do like about it was like the end credits which is a really fun play of like like interruption of the end credits was the fact that i like that the conflict is not resolved like this is still gonna go on it's an ongoing struggle that's gonna continue long after uh you know the movie is over yeah no no, i i agree and like I, I saw a lot of movies twice last year. Uh, probably not as much as I'm going to do this year, just because of the like the rule changes with Movie Pass. But my my reasons to going for them multiple times varied. Sometimes it's like, man, I had so much fun, or sometimes it's like, man, this is such a visual treat that like I shouldn't take advantage of seeing it twice in the big screen. Other times it was just I've I'm about to do my podcast on it and I haven't seen it in three weeks. I need to refresh myself and. Um, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing this again because like after talking to you guys, but after just thinking about it a lot, like I. I'm really excited to see what else I would pick up on another viewing because, like I said, I I was kind of overwhelmed the first time, and I sat back and I appreciated more things. And but like that that last act did kind of like overwhelm and confuse and really, but also stimulated me at the same time. And I, I, I the one thing I can definitely say is I didn't dislike it. I just wasn't sure like what it was trying to do and how well it did it and what all I was supposed to take from it. And I I feel like it's just as I've sat and thought more about it, like I've gained more from it and have come to different realizations and. I, I feel like that's a sign that you did something right. If you give someone that much to chew on, but because sometimes like a movie's like, oh, what did I just watch? Like, I don't really care enough to go back and watch it again. Like, I have that experience a lot, especially with some movies that might like, have a big revelation at the end that would turn everything in that came before it into different contexts. Like, sometimes I'll be like, oh yeah, it might be interesting to see like how that knowing that now it would feel going back and watching it. But I didn't like the experience enough to go back and actually take another two hours of my life to do this. And I feel like everything about this movie, like for me, warrants a second watch. And I th- and while I might not have known what to make of that second act to begin with, I'm, I feel like it did pull off kind of what it wanted. To, I'm sure it pulled off exactly what it wanted to, but like I feel like I'm getting a better appreciation for that as I think more and more about it. So, yeah. Um, are there any final thoughts any of you guys had that things I didn't ask you about that I didn't touch on or anything like that for the seven people that are still listening? <laughs> <laughs> No, now that you said that, though, I'm sure there's going to be all kinds of hot takes online about how it was all a dream. Oh, God. (laughs) Uh, I mean, and and that's the thing. Like, I mean, I guess you do have a lot of uh, cash talking to himself at the beginning, like being very existential and stuff like that. So I'm sure that'll give people an opening to go ahead and do that. But, I mean, I'm not going to think about it in that way. Um, uh, But, yeah, um, 
if, if, if we covered it, we covered it because, like, I kind of want to start making these things, sh- like, a little shorter just as a general rule because, like, who has the attention span to, like, sit and listen to three dudes talk for 55 minutes? But, like, I think, like I said at the beginning, like, I thought there was a lot to this movie and it warranted a lot of discussion. And I really appreciate you guys taking this time to talk to me because, like, both of you, like, have probably forgotten more about film than, like, I'll ever know. So it's pretty cool just to, like, have – be able to pick your brains about it and talk about stuff and, and learn about a movie that just has so much going on. So, like I said, thank you. Um, before we get out of here, like, do you guys have anything? Uh, like, I, like, but before I always sign off, I like asking people if they have anything they want to plug, whether it be your Twitter, or your letterbox, or something else. Josh, oh, uh, there's this great company. Um, it's hire. It will hire anybody. Uh, it's a life. It's a lifetime contract. It's called <laughs> free. If you're interested in it, um, I know a guy to hook you up. Okay? Yeah, if you're having trouble making ends meet, you know, it might be a might be a game changer for you. Um, <laughs> Elijah, anything else you want to plug? Um, no, I mean, we got a lot of great stuff coming up on uh, Filmstruck and uh, TCM over the next month. Yeah. We got a special on uh, Jean-Pierre Melville. I know it's going to come to uh, to Filmstruck pretty soon. So, uh, you know, just look forward to all that. But, um, yeah, no, I uh, – no, sorry, no horse mutagens or anything selling today. <laughs> so. All right, well – that's a good note to go out on. As usual, I'm on Twitter at, at Josh Renovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-I. I hope we were able to provide some good insight for you guys, and I appreciate anyone that stuck around and is still listening at this point. And uh, stick around, and we'll see you next time. I think next time we have another episode, it will probably be on both the Equalizer 2 and uh, Skyscraper. So look forward to that, and thanks for listening. <laughs>